Uh-oh, uh-oh, everyone's getting manic. Hands are starting to sweat. You can feel the panic. The problem seems to be inflation. Consumer prices are rising. What was your expectation? An economic boom? They're calling this the Roaring Twenties. These things come with costs. Start rolling up your pennies. You thought prices would stay low forever? Yeah, whatever. You thought stocks would keep rising, so mesmerizing, and SPACs would never fall? Don't think so small. These markets go in cycles, and usually they go too far, because it's our animal spirits that rule over them all. We get greedy when it's good, and oversell when it's not. Get all anxious about our profits. It ties us up in knots. That's no way to invest for the future, worrying all the time. And we can't time the market, but we can hear it rhyme. It's been telling us it's overheated. Bubbles bubbling everywhere. But that hasn't stopped us from buying. We'd love a good dare. So don't go crying in your coffee when volatility makes you stress. These markets go in cycles. Get on the Investopedia Express. Choppity chop, volatility is back, and the options market says there's more turbulence ahead. The Dow and S&P 500 are coming off their first negative week in four, and the Nasdaq finished lower for its fourth straight week. Still, investors seem to be willing to buy any dips they see in the broader market, at least for now. We'll break it down with our friend Kenny Palkari later in the show. And uh-oh, there goes crypto again. Bitcoin fell 10% on Sunday after Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla may sell its holdings of the coin. We'll talk about the headline risk with Greg King of Osprey Funds. A mega media merger deal kicks off the week as U.S. telecom giant AT&T says it's combining its Warner Media division with Discovery, paving the way for one of Hollywood's biggest studios to compete with the likes of rival media giants Netflix and Disney. That brings together CNN, TNT, the Cartoon Network, and HBO with Animal Planet, HGTV, and the Food Network, among other assets. AT&T shareholders would receive stock representing 71% of the new company, while Discovery shareholders would own 29%, and Discovery CEO David Zaslav will run the new enterprise. If you hadn't noticed, the big phone companies don't want to own content anymore like they used to. Verizon just sold off AOL and Yahoo for $5 billion, and AT&T is now issuing its media assets after paying $85 billion for Time Warner in 2018. The content business is hard and it's expensive, and these phone companies would rather focus on building out 5G. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Inside the U.S. economy, it's the I-word that has everyone's attention. Inflation is everywhere you look and everywhere you spend as consumer prices pop 4.2% in April from a year ago and producer prices pop 6.8%. The comps were low given how low prices fell a year ago, but demand is back and supplies are tight and interest rates are low. That's a recipe for a pretty hot economic barbecue this summer. Let's get set up for the week ahead. This week will bring the tail end of earnings season with big box retailers including Walmart, Home Depot, and Lowe's reporting results. Retail spending in April was not as strong as forecast, but inflationary pressures are prompting retailers to raise their prices. Will these companies follow suit? You better believe it. On the economic front, we'll get a look into the red-hot housing market with reports on U.S. existing home sales, mortgage applications, and housing starts for April. We know home prices have been on the rise, but mortgage rates have also been rising. Did that cool down the market overall? We'll find out this week. On the IPO front, some interesting new companies coming to the public markets this week. Squarespace, the website design company, is expected to start trading on May 19th, while Oatly, the Swedish oat milk company, is scheduled to make its debut on the 20th. The company has some big-name backers, including Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z, to name a few. Take the baseline out. P.S. If you haven't had Oatly's coffee ice cream, 
you are missing out on a treat. It's a big week for the Ford Motor Company. Ford is hosting an event to reveal the all-electric Ford 150. They're calling it the Lightning, and Ford says it has the same payload and towing capability as the original F-150. Talk about big tires to fill. The F-150 has been the best-selling vehicle in America for the past 20 years. How's the labor crunch going in the U.S.? Well, it's getting so bad that Domino's Pizza is reportedly offering some delivery drivers $1,000 to sign plus $25 an hour. FedEx and Cardinal Health are also paying $500 sign-on bonuses. Those higher wages are expected to pinch margins across sectors. We'll get another read on the labor sector when weekly unemployment claims are reported on Thursday. But the drumbeat is getting louder for the Biden administration to repeal those $300 weekly extended unemployment pandemic payments sooner than August 31st. Already several states, including Tennessee and Missouri, have announced they'll be cutting them this month. If your neck hurts from all the volatility and stock market whiplash in the past few weeks, join the club. Volatility, which was on an extended hibernation, woke up and it's hungry. While nowhere near the highs of late last spring, the VIX or volatility index has been spiking lately and the put-to-call ratio in the options market has become a beehive of activity. The NASDAQ has fallen for four straight weeks, yet the broader market and the Dow Industrials are still dancing around record highs. Well, when I need some clarity and a good recipe for an Italian meal, I reach out to our friend Kenny Palcari of Case Capital Advisors and he's back aboard the Express. Good to see you again, Kenny. Good to see see you. How are you? I'm good. You see the market activity from the institutional side where the big money is. So why so choppy lately from your perspective? Listen, and we've talked about this for a while, right? The markets are unsettled because we're getting this conflicting data, right? We've got the Fed and the Treasury Secretary and other talking heads tell us not to worry. There's no inflation. But then we get macro data, which contradicts what they're telling us. Beside the fact is that me, like you, like everybody who's listening, lives in this world, and we walk outside and you go shopping and you see it for ourselves, what's happening to prices, what's happening in, with different things you need to buy. And so therefore, it's difficult to reconcile what we see with our own eyes and what they're trying to tell us. And so therefore, there remains this, this angst in the market. Everyone wants to believe that the Fed is right. They don't want to see inflation rear its ugly head. But the sense is you get Wednesday's CPI report was the perfect example. And quite honestly, yesterday's PPI report was also much stronger than the expectation, which is negative, right? You want it to be weaker, the PPI, but it was stronger. And it was substantially stronger. But yet, they tried to talk that down yesterday. Quite honestly, they reported on it, and then they moved right on to you know initial jobless claims, which had plunged, which is a positive, so that's good. They moved right on to the story about Kentucky Fried Chicken and Chipotle and, and McDonald's and Amazon hiring all these workers and creating tens of thousands of jobs and raising the base pay to $15 an hour, $17 an hour, and paying bonuses, all positive. So it's conflicting to people, right? And so that's why we see the volatility that we've seen in the market. Yeah, And also, not like we've ever seen this before in terms of coming out of a year-long pandemic lockdown and into a booming economy like this. So this is uncharted territory for all of us. That said, the drumbeat's getting louder around the Federal Reserve as inflation keeps bubbling up. People are worried it might start raising interest rates sooner than in 2023 when it said it would start that. Is that fear real or is this just the kind of thing that the the walls of worry that investors climb every day? I think the fears are real. That doesn't mean they're going to raise interest rates tomorrow or next week. But I find it very difficult for the Fed to have said, and remember, he said through 2023. He didn't say at the beginning of 2023. He's actually talking about the beginning of 2024. Four, because they said they were going to hold rates through 2023. Now, I thought that was a very difficult promise to make because 
because of where we are, where we're going, we're coming out of this recovery, it's going to be strong, we can feel the pressures. And so therefore, I think that that conversation about a taper and potentially a moving rates is very real. Now, am I guessing on when it's going to start? No, but here's what I'm going to tell you. I think they're absolutely going to recognize that they're thinking about thinking about the taper conversation sometime late this summer, early fall, because I think that's what's going to happen. I think the macro data is going to continue to improve. It's going to get stronger. I don't think the inflation is as transitory as they say it is. And I think that's going to force their hand. We've seen this rotation all year, Kenny, out of tech into value. It's been going on at the same time. But every time the NASDAQ feels like it's going to fall into a correction, like it fell 4 or 5% last week, there's investors ready to buy the dip there. Are, are big investors not really willing to let go of positions or let these big mega cap tech stocks fall, which really drive market returns overall if you look at the indexes? Yeah, no, I agree. And it's an interesting question you ask because it is certainly one to consider. But uh, I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think that when you look at the index itself, the NASDAQ was down 9%, right? Or at one8 have or 9%. Yet, if you look at some of the individual names, they're down much more than 9%, right? Some of these names are down 15, 20. Some of the tech disruptors are down almost 50%. And so therefore, that's a very different move than the overall broader index, right? And so I think what you see happening, certainly in some of the more mature tech names versus the the less mature, meaning that, you know, the newer ones, like the, the, like the disruptors, which are the newer names versus an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft. Right, the Airbnbs versus the Apples, the right. DocuSigns, the Zooms, the Pelotons, the, the stay-at-home wonders. Right. And those are the ones that I have certainly had. Those have gotten hit harder. And I think maybe rightly so, especially if the world's going to reopen, that work-from-home trade may, in fact, start to fade a little bit. But look, this, Zoom is always going to stick around. Zoom is not going to suddenly go away just because the world reopens again. Quite honestly, I, you know, it may not be as popular as it is during this last year, but the fact is they have changed the world. But in those big tech names, I think there's great opportunity as they start to pull back, whether or not you want to believe that the market's going to shift to value over growth, because I think it is. Look at the value trade. is up 15% year to date, the SPYV, which is the S&P value ETF versus the G, SPYG, the growth ETF, that's up 4.5% versus 15.5%. So the value trade is alive and well. And I believe the value trade will be the story for 2021. I really do. That doesn't mean you throw growth out, but it does mean that, like you said, there's that rolling kind of rebalancing going on. But I don't think tech is dead by any stretch of the, of the imagination. And We've also come off a monster rally. And you know this, Kenny. Investors have very short memories. We've just come off a 75% rally in the S&P 500 from the lows of last March 2020. So a correction wouldn't be crazy. That happens all the time. But as you remember, the market looked very similar in 2010 coming out of the great financial crisis. And then it had a wicked hot correction around this time of year, to borrow a phrase from your part of the world. <laughs> what's similar? What's different about today versus 2010? Well, I certainly think there's a lot of exuberance, right? There's a lot of excitement that is still built up. We've had that big, massive rally off of a year ago, right? Number one. And we got these zero rates, which are potentially going to change. And that whole taper conversation, they weren't going to talk about tapering back in 2010. We were still very much in the thick of it. Now the taper conversation is very real. Now, whether or not it's happening or whether or not they say it's happening, the fact is, I think that's one of the differentiating factors. But if the economy continues to expand and, and expand robustly the way it feels like it is, then I think some of that could be muted, right? I don't, I don't expect, at least I'm not seeing that the market's going to crack like have this big 30 or 40% correction. Look, we haven't even, 
from zero to 10%, the market's very much in a normal trading range, right? It doesn't really go to correction mode until you hit 10%. And the NASDAQ did it back in February just for a brief day and a half. It was down 11 or 11.5%. And rallied right back. Yeah. Yeah, that was was a cute correction. Right. And so, you know, this past week, they pushed them down just to about eight and a half or nine percent. And then they came back in. So we're still within that normal range. And people need to understand that. But again, you got to look at your individual names, because those are the ones that are really telling the story about where the money's moving out of and where the money's moving into. Absolutely. And just look at transport stocks too. The transports have just been rolling week after week after week. That tells you we're in an economic recovery and these higher prices, inflation, those things come hand in hand with that. But so much, and you're right, these are intense moves lately, but investors who just got into this market in the last year or two think things just grind higher the whole way up. They don't. It's a choppy market by nature. It just happens to be choppier just given the unprecedented times. The bounce we had on Thursday, the market rallied strong. But guess what? Out of the 11 S&P sectors, the strongest sector on Thursday were utilities, which is interesting because utilities is a defensive safety play. It's not sexy. It's not high growth. It's not, you know, come and get me. People go into utilities when they're looking for some stability in defense. And isn't it interesting that the market had sold off, the NASDAQ and Russell were down 8.5 or 9%. And when the rally happened, and the broadly, all the indexes rallied other than energy because there's a... We could talk about that too. The whole colonial pipeline thing caused a little bit of movement in that. But one or the other, all the other indexes went higher and utilities were right at the top, which suggests to me that while people, you know, they're excited, they want to be in the market, but they're also buying, they're playing defense and they're playing stability. And I feel better just speaking to you. What are we cooking this weekend, Kenny? So listen, I came up and I featured this in my note last week because when the markets are really angry, right, I try to connect the recipe to the mood, the mood of the investors, the mood of traders, and the mood of the markets. And so what comes to mind right away is uh, is an arrabbiata sauce, which is in a, a red sauce, but it's hot. It's got red chili pepper in it, or you could put even jalapeno in it if you really want it hot, or red pepper flakes if you want it more mild but hot. But one way or the other, it is indicative of kind of what the mood of the market was, right? So it's a simple sauce to make. It probably takes you 25 minutes and then you boil your pasta. So maybe the whole thing's done in a half an hour. But you want me to tell you how to make it? Absolutely. Please. (laughs) I mean, I read the note. I have it taped to my fridge, but coming out of your mouth, it makes it sound more delicious. Okay, so here's what you need. I'll give you everything you need first. You need olive oil. You need a big white onion, a Spanish onion. You need garlic, red wine, some sugar, crushed red pepper or chili peppers if you want it really hot. You need fresh lemon juice, oregano, salt and pepper, crushed tomatoes, and tomato paste. You know that little tiny can of tomato paste you can buy? And chopped parsley just to decorate it, right? So here's what you do. Uh, On the one thing, put a pot of water on the stove and bring it up to a rolling boil. Put salt in it so it's ready to go when you need it. In a big saute pan. And something that will accommodate both the sauce and then the pasta after you cook it. So make sure you got a nice deep one, right? So heat up the olive oil and take your garlic and slice the garlic. Don't smash it and crush it. Slice it. And this one, I, I love garlic. So I would use, if I'm going to make a pound of pasta, I'm going to probably use three nice sized cloves of garlic. Slice it up, put it in the oil, saute it around. Don't let it burn. But put the heat like on medium high. Make sure you're there so it doesn't burn. About three or four minutes. Add the onions now. So what I'll do is I'll peel the onion, cut the onion in half, and then make like half moons out of it versus don't chop it or dice it. I like the way the, the onion looks when it's like a half moon. It's kind of adds texture to the sauce. So slice the onion, slice it just like that, add it to the pot, add it to the uh, skillet with the uh, garlic and the oil. 
saute it around maybe five or six minutes. You want the onion to get a little bit soft. And so depending on, on your stove and all that, yeah, how high you have the heat, just don't burn it, right? After you've done that, you're convinced that the onions are nice and soft the way you like it. You're going to add a half a cup of red wine. Now, in this case, add the wine you like. You can't really go wrong. Am I pouring a Brunello in there or am I pouring well, a nice red put, table? I was, no, I was just going to say, I was going to say, you could use a nice table wine like a Chianti. You can use a Brunello di Montalcino. A Brunello di Montalcino is going to, is going to give it a really robust flavor, but I wouldn't put like a Pinot Noir. A table wine is always good or a Brunello is good. A Cabernet is good. It's also like what you like because then you're going to use whatever you use to cook with is what you're used to drink when you, when you have the pasta. You're also going to add a half of a tablespoon of sugar. You're going to take the lemon. You're going to roll the lemon on the counter so you get it all juicy on the inside. So when you cut it and you squeeze it right into the pan, the lemon juice comes right out into the tomatoes, right? You want to add oregano. You want to add probably a half a can of that tomato paste. You know, the small cans of tomato paste. Take like half of it, put it in the pan. Now, before you add the crushed tomatoes, put all that together in the pan, stir it around because that tomato paste has to kind of melt a little bit, right? Because it's solid. So put it with the wine, mix everything up, let it melt. Once it's all melted, now put in a 28-ounce can of kitchen-ready crushed tomatoes, not puree, just crushed tomatoes. And if you can't get the crushed tomatoes, just buy a 28-ounce can of whole peeled tomatoes and run them through your blender really quick, crush them, and then pour it right in, right? And then you add the crushed red pepper. If you want just red pepper flakes, if you want it really hot, you put the chili pepper, right? That's completely your call. You can make it as hot or a little bit more mild if you want. Bring it to a boil and then turn it down the simmer. Once you bring it to a boil, turn it down the simmer. Let it cook on the stove for 15 or 20 minutes. Just stir it. Don't cover it because you want some of that liquid to evaporate away so it thickens up a little bit, right? You don't want a really watery sauce. Let it cook for 15 or 20 minutes. In the meantime, after you're satisfied that tastes right, it's cooked right, 20 minutes, Put the pasta in the boiling water. I would use a spaghetti linguine for this, right? You want to cook it till it's, it's a twirl. It's a twirling dish. Yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely a twirling dish, right? And cook the pasta al dente eight minutes, right? Test it. But once it's done, don't strain it. Just take a pair of tongs, food tongs, and then just take the pasta right out of the boiling water, hold it up a little bit, drain it off a little bit, and then put it right in the pan with the sauce. And do that until you get all the pasta in the sauce. Mix it well so it's all coated. If it feels like the pasta is sucked up a lot of the sauce, that's okay. Take a mug full of water, add a little bit of water at a time just to kind of bring some life back to it. Again, don't make it too liquidy, but just make it so it comes back to life, right? Before you serve it, take a handful of fresh grated Parmigiana cheese put it right in the pasta in the sauce again toss it and then when you serve it serve it in a, a nice warm bowl uh and have extra cheese on the table for your guests and and the red wine that you used to cook with it's perfect i love it i'm gonna try that recipe this weekend maybe with some antacid maybe with a little vanilla gelato afterwards just to cool things down and i'm gonna feed it to my kids and see what they think and i will let you know love having you on the show great analysis great recipes as usual and folks you gotta follow kenny's newsletter or follow him on youtube at kenny paul Carey if you want these recipes because now he's talking markets and he's cooking at the same time two of my favorite things and i'm a addict of that channel kenny always good to have you on the show thanks for having me Wild times in the cryptocurrency market, to say the least. We know prices for many tokens have gone absolutely parabolic in the past year, but it doesn't take much to rattle the market. Dogecoin alone fell 30% during last Saturday's appearance by Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live, even though Dogecoin is more of a joke and Musk isn't very funny. 
But then Bitcoin tumbled last week when Musk said that Tesla won't accept Bitcoins for its cars anymore. He's worried about the electricity required to mine the currency. While all this noise is happening around crypto, though, institutional investors are getting deeper and deeper into the game. Nearly every big asset manager is making plans or is already allowing its customers to invest in some coins, and ETFs are on the launch pad in the U.S. for sometime this or next year. Add another entrant to the market, Osprey Funds, which launched the Osprey Bitcoin Trust, just announced the Osprey Polkadot Trust, which will invest exclusively in DOT, the native token of the Polkadot network. If you think I know what that means, I have a few bridges to sell you. That's why Greg King is here. He's the CEO of Osprey and our guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Greg. Caleb, quite an introduction. Thank you. I'm famous for those. But first of all, what is the Osprey Bitcoin Trust for people who aren't familiar with your first product offering? So the Osprey Bitcoin Trust is a fund that simply holds Bitcoin. It's available under the ticker OBTC in the secondary market. And what we're trying to do is make crypto investing a little more accessible for mainstream American investors. Why do I say that? I say that because a lot of people find that when they go to invest in crypto, they have to deal with companies they've never heard of. They have to pull money out of either bank accounts or brokerage accounts to kind of get it where it needs to go. And then there are a lot of constraints around that with passwords and private keys and things like that may not be as familiar for many investors. So we create essentially funds that wrap these exposures into a security that can be held ultimately in a brokerage account by mainstream America. So what's different or what's similar to what we may see with a Grayscale or a Galaxy? Well, Galaxy doesn't have funds in the US, but Grayscale does. And they were certainly the first and the biggest in the space. We're basically the second to kind of come into that arena of ticker-based Bitcoin exposure. We have a much lower fee structure than they do. And then we custody our assets with Fidelity Investments. So it's really an alternative option at the moment for investors to choose between two products offering very similar service, but one of which, of course, I'm biased, is cheaper and I think better. I hope you would be. Okay, what is DOT and why does the world need this token? So if you think about where the space is going, Polkadot is really exciting. Everyone's been talking about Ethereum lately. And as your investors may or may not know, your listeners, Ethereum is more of a platform than a coin, right? So there are actually hundreds of additional coins and tokens that have been created using the Ethereum software and protocol. And basically, Ether tokens, which is what runs Ethereum, need to be used up in order for all that ecosystem to kind of work. And that's what drives the supply and demand and the price of those tokens. Polkadot was founded by Gavin Wood. He was one of the basically co-founders of Ethereum. And it tries to take things actually up a level to where a multi-chain universe is envisioned. And they their platform enables coins to talk to each other, if that if that makes sense, if I can put it that way. In the crypto world, that makes a ton of sense. In the real world, (laughs) I don't know what that means. In the real world, who knows? So if you just go back to Ethereum, Ethereum was sort of the first and the biggest to provide us with a trustless platform whereby smart contracts could be executed. So you can have a token that's set up in a way that if XYZ event comes to pass, a payment is made from person A to person B. And it all happens electronically, automatically, through the blockchain, it's secured. Uh, you don't have to trust that that payment's going to happen. Those funds are already in place and it just it just goes automatically. Well, in the polychain universe, you can see that if a trustless smart contract gets executed on chain A, a payment could be made using chain B's token. 
right? And so it, it might be difficult to envision how those applications make any sense or have any impact, but we believe it's potentially huge because one of the problems, one of the main problems with crypto is these are all discrete projects and they don't really communicate with each other. They're not really fungible. Polkadot's trying to create an ecosystem that changes a lot of that. It's a very ambitious project, but we wanted to launch our second fund on something that we are fans of, that we've done our homework on and that we believe in, and something, frankly, that hadn't been done before. And we're the first to launch on Polkadot. Right. So investors, if they want to buy into this trust, they are betting on the future of Polkadot as a, as a token and on the future of this ecosystem. Correct. Yes. Your press release says this is an amazing platform focused on enabling Web 3.0. What is Web 3.0 and what did you do with 2.0? Crypto, honestly, is just in, in a lot of ways a movement away from the middle. It's decentralizing the control of whether it's the money supply, as in Bitcoin, or whether it's some other kind of token or project that uses customer data. The movement is outward, right? So if you imagine the internet right now, the internet is controlled by a, you know, I wouldn't say controlled, but there's some very big presences felt on the internet. There's some, there are some heavy giants in there. We all know who they are. We all know who they are. At the end of the day, all your information is centralized there. They control it. They have access to it. They monetize it, etc. Web 3.0 is simply trying to describe a world where that's no longer the case. And if there is a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook of Web 3.0, the associated information to do with invest our uh, customers, their buying habits, their personal data, et cetera, will not reside anywhere centrally, will not be under the control of anyone centrally. It will be distributed out, decentralized and anonymized. And ultimately, that means the control of all of that resides with the user of the owner of that data rather than the vendor, the middleman. So like I say, it's a pretty big vision. I get it. But I also understand where this is going. And that's why you see things like non-fungible tokens becoming a bigger deal. You see the, the, the applications of the blockchain in terms of ownership and authenticity in a digital or non-centralized world. That makes a ton of sense to me. But you're in a noisy market here, right? There's a lot going on in the cryptocurrency market. Every day it's making headlines. There's also investor appetite, Greg. It's obvious given the market caps of Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and other tokens. But how are traditional investors supposed to have faith in these tokens when they seem pretty susceptible to headline risk and they really have no fundamentals that I can sink my teeth into like I can if I want to open the hood on a, on a traditional stock? Yeah, great question. Comes up every time when there's some, some volatility as well. So the way I think about it is in terms of relative sizing. You know, I think we all as investors, you know, it's been proven by research. We have a lot of behavioral tendencies that are not exactly optimal. For example, we hold our losers too long in portfolios and uh, sell our winners too early. I'm guilty of both. Yeah, well, same here. I mean, we're human. But one of these two is to fixate on price movements and especially in isolation. So what we always encourage investors to do is right size their investment Yeah, and look at it in terms of the overall portfolio. It really doesn't matter if a crypto or a stock or any particular single investment is highly volatile you know, just take it down to a tiny position in the portfolio, right? It doesn't matter overall. What matters is its correlation to the rest of your portfolio. What matters is its expected return. And what matters is the size of that investment. If you put half your assets into Bitcoin, you loved Elon Musk until the other day, and then you hated him and, and you can't sleep. At <laughs> you know, that's too much. That's too much. So that's why people preach diversification. And you know what? 
one of the other sort of tried and true investment methods is dollar cost averaging, right? If you were a person who was trying to get into Bitcoin, sell-offs like the one we've experienced recently is, is a great way to kind of continue to dollar cost average in and get that average price down. Sure. Just got a little bit cheaper. And I get what you're saying. Technical analysis, probably more favorable than fundamental analysis when there are no fundamentals to assess per se. So if you look at price movement, you look at history, you look at patterns, they often do play out in the crypto tokens, except when they go absolutely bananas like they have in recent months. What needs to happen in your opinion, Greg, on the regulatory front for crypto to become more federally sanctioned and for traditional investors, therefore, to feel more comfortable with it if they feel like the stamp by the federal government or permission would make it uh, safer, so to speak? A lot of little things at the margin, but one of the big ones is for the SEC to provide some guidance around how to analyze different cryptocurrencies. One of the issues behind the scenes, I mean, it's not really behind the scenes, but if your listeners aren't focused on it day to day, they may not be aware, is that cryptocurrencies, when they get launched, it's not necessarily always clear whether that particular token is a commodity or whether it's a security or whether it's something else. And in the U.S., that means if the answer is A, you live under one regulator. If the answer is B, you live under a different regulator. If the answer is C, it's yet a third. And so there's there's kind of a lot of, the um, I wouldn't say confusion, but lack of clarity. And so I think one of the things that the regulators could do is really define a framework whereby when coins are launched, it's clear what they are. This is a security. This is not a security, et cetera. And I think they're working towards that. You know, we're cautiously optimistic that when we get into the full swing of this Gary Gensler, the new SEC chair, then he's going to address this. You know, he did teach a course on crypto at MIT. So versus the previous chair, he's viewed as much more conversant on the topic, but remains to be seen what he's going to do. Yeah. And the Fed has hired uh, someone to so to run their their exploration into digital currencies, and she'll be a future guest on the Express. Good luck on the launch of this new trust. And we'd like to hear from you again. Best wishes and thanks for joining us on the Express. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of John and Everett Washington. John suggests price elasticity for this week's term, and we like that given all the talk about inflation and the rise in consumer prices. Well, according to my favorite website, elasticity is a measure of a variable sensitivity to a change in another variable. Most commonly, this sensitivity is the change in price relative to changes in other factors. In business and economics, elasticity refers to the degree to which individuals, consumers, or producers change their demand or the amount supplied in response to price or income changes. It is predominantly used to assess the change in consumer demand as a result of a change in a good or service's price. Think about the products or services you spend money on every day or week or every month. Which ones are you willing to keep paying for even when the price keeps rising? Good suggestion, John, from Everett Washington. You'll be getting a pair of the ruggedly handsome Investopedia socks in the mail, and we'd like to see you sporting those on your next hike up to the Mukilteo Light Station in Lighthouse Park up there in beautiful Everett Washington. Well, we'll let President Ronald Reagan take us out this week, and here's the president addressing the nation February 5th, 1981, just after he took office. He's talking about runaway inflation, which was up nearly 10%. The Federal Reserve had pushed interest rates into double digits, and the personal savings rate was plummeting. Here is a dollar such as you earned, spent, or saved in 1960. And here is a quarter, a dime, and a penny. 36 cents. That's what this 1960 dollar 
is worth today. And at the present world inflation rate, and our rate should continue three more years, that dollar of 1960 will be worth a quarter. Reagan went on to slash taxes, cutting the top tax rate from 70% to 50% in 1982 and cutting the corporate tax rate from 46% to 34%. The economy grew 4.5% in 1983, 7.2% in 1984, and 4.1% in 1985, but the unemployment rate was as high as 6.6% by the time we got to 1986. The budget deficit hit $110 billion in fiscal year 1982. For fiscal year 2021, the federal budget deficit is projected to hit $2.3 trillion. Higher, baby. Get higher, baby. Get higher, baby. And don't ever come down. Did I just go from Ronald Reagan to Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel? I believe I did. But that was the 1980s, a magic time to be growing up in this country. Well, that's our last stop on this week's Express, but you can ride with us all week long by subscribing to our daily newsletters, following us across Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, or just check into Investopedia.com whenever you need just to get a little bit smarter. I do it all the time. Be bold this week and be kind. We'll talk with you again a little further on down the line. Ah!